Psalm 34, and let me just give you <clears throat> the background story to this text, which is, and it's, it, it may seem a little complicated to you, I'm going to try to simplify it. And it says, at the beginning of the psalm, it says, of David, that is a psalm that David wrote, <clears throat> when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. So you see, oh, now I know why PT's preaching on this text. <laughs> so here's what happened. David, prior to being the king of Israel, enjoyed enormous success at the hand of God. God was doing things through David that were inexplicable from a human perspective. And it caught the interest of the people of Israel so much that they began to sing songs of praise to the king and to David, which is a death sentence. Here's what they said. Saul, King Saul, has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Probably not the best way to deal with the king like Saul. Saul went into a rage. He had already demonstrated rage toward David, but by this time, this was terminal for their relationship. And so David flees to a town called Gath in the area of the Philistines. There, there is a king named Achish who lives under a title, kind of like the pharaohs of Egypt, Abimelech. And Achish is the king, King Abimelech, under uh, and in that town of Achish. So David goes there, and some of the servants of King Achish are thinking, isn't David the one of whom they sing in Israel? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And don't you think it a bit odd that we're giving aid and help to a man who was chased out of his own country for apparent insurrection. David catches word of that, and he, for absolute fear of his life, begins to feign, at some level, insanity. He begins to act like a nut. <laughs> I was going to illustrate that. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay? He just acted like he had lost it. And King Abimelech's response is, he's like a joke. Just let him go. Now, the reason David adopted that strategy was he was in fear of his life. That if King Saul had a reason to kill David, Abimelech, king of Achish, had a bigger reason to kill him. So David goes through this change of countenance, feigns insanity, and the king just kind of blows him off. Like, are you, why are you guys worried about a nut like that? And it's by that means that David ends up escaping. Somehow God used that. David is now reflecting probably on a broader scale, on the goodness of God in his life. He has seen God deliver him over and over and over and over again through means that cannot be humanly described or explained. We can kind of get an idea of it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make sense that David is so successful. There's something divine about the protection of God in his life. There's something divine and unique about the power of God that is being manifested through his life. And this psalm for David comes later in his life. He's obviously now become the king of Israel. God has brought him to the place of power that he promised to David by his sovereign plan, protecting him from enemies, from his own son, who tried an insurrection, tried to kill him. And David is now sitting on the throne years down the road. 
in that season of life, as he reflects on the goodness of God and the work of God in his life, there's humility that comes over and he begins to reflect on circumstances in his life that are now being recorded in what we know as the Psalms of Israel. They're the king's attempt to direct the heart of the people to worship God so that they won't be people who sing praises to the king instead to the king of kings. Okay, so that's his aim. So this psalm, with that background of David delivered through sometimes very odd circumstances, David gives us what I will say simply is a call to worship. He says, I will extol the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And I want you to I want you to think about the two words that are used there. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my lips. Folks, can I suggest this, that if that happened in this church, it would be transformational. If we came on Sunday morning as a people saying, I am committed to knowing and blessing and praising God at all times and continually, that Sunday morning would not be a different experience from the rest of the week. It would become part of the rest of the week. That heart that adores God to the point that it can't help but praise him. And so David gives really at the beginning of this a call to worship. He says, my soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear what I'm saying and let them rejoice. David knew what it was to be afflicted. Glorify the Lord with me, he then says. And let us exalt his name together. In a few weeks, we'll do a little more study on worship and kind of the nature of it. But for this morning, I just, I just want to briefly summarize these verses. This idea of boasting in the Lord in verse 2 simply means to tell of his greatness or to tell of one's greatness. So if someone is boastful, they're very concerned that other people are aware of their accomplishments. David is concerned that people know about God's accomplishments. And for him, that is at the heart of his life at all times, continually. He knows God and he praises God. Then he says, let us magnify him. And I, and I thought of this word. What does a magnifying glass or a microscope do? What a magnifying glass or a microscope does is it allows you to see things that you cannot see with the naked eye. It adds clarity to what you're viewing. And so what is David talking about? He's talking about making so much of God that in our praise they have a clear understanding of who he is and it begins to affect other people. Verse 3 then ties in this bigger picture. He, he's talking about personal experience and expands on that verse 2. Verse 3, he says, You, in the imperative, glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And, and, and I just, I want you to think about this for a moment. Public praise for the church is to be normative and it is also to be medicinal. It is to be normative. It is, should be what we do. And John, when you go in church, you should see that people actually love praising God. It should be normative because it is medicinal. Normative, it's totally appropriate to give to make much of God, to make God large and clear. But it is medicinal for the hurting heart. And I think here's what happens. It's medicinal 
It is uh, spiritual food. It is for us nourishment for our hearts. And I think what David is saying is this to the church. Do this with me. In the congregation, I'm praising, I am so, I've thought about God, I've focused on who he is. And this is where doctrine, knowing who God is, informs praise. Because praise that is purely based on emotion or simply on songs without strong content will leave you empty. Thought about the words we were singing this morning. When you sing powerful truth and God etches that in your mind so that you wake up like I do at three in the morning with whatever the last song was running through your mind thinking about who God is informed so that you can praise in a way that literally sustains your heart see without content you can't do that and here's what David's going to do he gives a call to worship he says that that worship intends to inform and encourage the afflicted amongst the people of God he had experienced that he wants others to know that joy And what he now is going to do is go into a a series of discussions that are intended to, first of all, tell you about his experience of God. It's really his testimony. But then he's going to go into the acts of God. Both are intended to inform, inform us about what God is doing in the life of David and also what God is doing on a broader scale, who he is. Okay, so let's let's work our way through this text looking for reasons to worship or encouragements, if you will, to worship in the experience of David, first of all, verses four through eight. Now, just not going to read through the whole text. I want to read through as we work our way through this this morning. David says, I sought the Lord. Perhaps when he was thinking about strategy with Abimelech, how do I get out of this? I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I'm going to tell you something. This is kind of inside information, okay? Ryan came up to me before the service, and Ryan, it's about to become outside information. Ryan said, I'm nervous. After, I, after we got done, I said, well, why, why are you nervous? <laughs> I, I said to him, so am I. It's rare for me on a Sunday to get up to preach. I don't feel butterflies. James, you that way? Like, it's weird, but I'm like, I am 55 in two days. You heard that right, right? So, so David is saying, first of all, I called to the Lord, he answered. Simply to say this, God in David's life was an active deliverer. That's how he knew God to be. It's his testimony. If God's done something in your life, say something. Amen. It's that simple. Verse 5, those who look to him are, and I love this word, they are radiant. That's a word that's used to describe a bride on her wedding day. Radiant, glowing. Moses, when he encountered the goodness of God, came down with an effect on his life. You see this with people that walk with God and that love God. There's a radiance. There's something, as Don said, that you see that's different. Those that look to him are radiant. And then there's a contrastive statement. Their faces are never covered with shame. Have you ever been shamed? I've had this where I've said, oh, no, so-and-so is a really good worker, and I recommend them. And then somebody calls me and says, what did you say about that worker? Also, they work really good, and they're like, "Uh, it totally blew up. And then my face is covered with what? Shame. David says those that look to the Lord, their face, their countenance, is never covered with the shame of disappointment in God. Isn't that beautiful? 
they're radiant, and the radiance, the countenance is never, it, and we, we go through this, we go through times where our countenance falls with news that we receive, hard news, difficult news. And then we, get, we have to struggle to get back to perspective that in this circumstance, God is still on his throne. He's still in control, even though it is unbelievable in that moment. Yeah. I record the truth about God who never changes. And you mark it, and you find that he is the lifter of your countenance. Do you see? And David is saying, I looked to him, and you know what? I ended up, can you imagine in his David and Goliath account, how David came home that day? Dreaded and fear overcoming, stepping out in simple obedience into a circumstance that he can't handle. Faces Goliath, experiences victory at the hand of God. His face, radiant. Not boastful, not proud, but very happy in God. Folks, that is the experience that we as Christians have when we begin to live a life that incurs a little bit of risk because God is great and able to do great and abundant things through us. And when we step out and begin to walk in faith in that way, we begin to experience the power of God that doesn't leave us in shame. And when that happens, there's a radiance. There's a confidence in God that begins to come, a joy. And knowing that he is good and that he is incredibly capable. God has no unfulfilled promises. I do. I've made promises to my daughters. I've made commitments. And circumstances or capacity has been limited. And David can say, I have never experienced shame in God. Verses 6 to 7, he says, this poor man. Can you think about this with me? David's the king of Israel. How many poor kings do you know? What is he saying? This poor man, king of Israel, David, king of Israel, the line of the Messiah. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. And I, I, I think David's poverty here, I think is almost unmistakably not financial. But you and I can think of circumstances in David's life when he was morally bankrupt and emotionally crushed in spirit. And I think it's in that sense, feigning madness before Abimelech, looking like a fool. I think David knew what it was to be poor. But this poor man cried. This person who had no status, couldn't buy an audience, didn't have influence. He cried and the Lord heard him. Folks, I don't underestimate the power of that statement. Jesus says, God says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you cannot understand or believe. He says, put me to the test and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you can't contain. Go ahead. So David is saying, this poor man cried and the Lord answered him. That's one of the things that is prompting his praise. God responded to someone who had no chips in the game, no cards on the table. He, he had nothing left. But the Lord answered it at him and saved him out of all his troubles. David could look back and say, I experienced times of long duration when Saul was chasing him in the wilderness, trying to kill him for extended periods of time. David knew what it was to feel abandoned by God. But at the end of the day, what's his testimony? I've never been abandoned. This poor man cried, and every time I cried, ultimately, God did his will and purpose in my life, and with that, I am delighted. 
And what's it doing? It's causing David to say, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He's reflecting on his story. So what part of your story did God give you so that you could look to others and say, in spite of difficulty, God has been good. And when this impoverished person cried out, he answered. And I love what verse 7 says, because here's part of the answer. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. Is that not awesome? The angel of the Lord, God's very presence, encamps around those who reverence him. And what does that mean? That means when you are living a life of obedience, you can count on the very powerful presence and proximity of God himself. If that doesn't encourage your heart, I got nothing else to say. That promise, which in the New Testament becomes very personal. Because the indwelling spirit, Jesus says, is God himself. Who has come near, who has taken up residence in your heart to calm and to encourage and help the, the butterflies to settle down. And what I, so you say, well, how do you deal with the butterflies in preaching? I have just, from, from 12th grade, the first time I shared a devotional, I've, I've known what it is to begin to speak and have that fade away. Yeah. Can you explain it? No. 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 But I know that often what's being shared isn't what's in the notes. Okay? And I can only attribute that to God because a lot of times I'll say, I, I didn't think of that before. In my study, that never came up. But God will add clarity to truth as you begin to speak it. And that's not only true in the pulpit, it's true as you practice it in your personal life. He encamps around you to make you effective in his kingdom. So are you stepping out into a place where you can cultivate and develop a story of the power of God in your life because you had courage to step out and obey him in all of the areas that he calls you to without being selective because that's what people who reverence him do. They simply say, Lord, speak. And I will follow. It's the heart of a Christian. It's the heart of a disciple of Christ. He speaks. We follow. He empowers. We praise and have a story, a testimony that we can share. Now, I love what David does next. Talks about his experience with God, and he's just all about it. And what is the next thing he does? He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What does he mean by that? Okay, I think it's something different than when I'm at dinner with my wife at a nice restaurant and she offers to share her meal. Do you want a sample? She knows I'm greedy and aggressive. <laughs> so she's got wise. She actually, here's what she does now. Because I used to like duck with my knife and fork go in and take a portion because she asked me to. Just to honor her request. Now I end up with like a little piece that's cut off and put on my plate. And standing at the ready with the fork. Don't touch my plate. Taste and see is to eat the whole meal. It's to dive fully in to and participate in the provision of God. And David says, when I think about the goodness of God and when I think about his deliverance, when I think about my story, it, it causes me to say something. Taste and see that God is good. My wife has a habit of saying to me, try it, you'll like it. And I'm like, honey, there are certain things that you eat that I honestly have no interest in and that I think are unnatural. 
They may be healthy, but they're unnatural. If you look in my refrigerator, I, I have I should have taken a picture and brought it. Soy milk, coconut milk. What's the other one? Almond milk. Almond milk and coconut. I'm like, I try it, you'll like it. No. No. I did that with olives, and I'm like, oh, I had one when I was 53, and I avoided them my whole I knew that I wouldn't like it. Okay, I have never. Okay, I, I mean, chia seeds, I mean, kale. Things that I was like, I don't, I smelled it, and I know. God told me through my smell. My <laughs> prominent device for checking things out. He said, he says to me, no, don't eat that. It will come out, and not the normal way. It will come out in a way you don't want it to come out. So David says, taste and see that God is good. Here's what I'll tell you this morning. I don't know anyone who is dove fully into God with a heart to glorify him. Not to get their needs met, but with a heart to glorify him. Who has been disappointed in that pursuit. Now let me understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that some of the strongest Christians I know don't go through seasons of struggle and difficulty. Because we do. Your pastoral team does your elders do. Dave shared a situation with me this morning in the life of a friend of theirs. It breaks your heart. There are circumstances within our own church family where I just say, God, I don't understand that. But I believe you're good. And I think what David is saying, ultimately, at the end of the day, when he reflects on his own story, which is full of extended periods of struggle, at the end of the day, David's call is taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So folks, here's the question I want to ask you. What is the story that God has given you? What is the testimony that he has given you that is to aid you in worship and that is to aid you in encouraging others to worship God? Jim, thank you for sharing your story this morning. Okay, I'm encouraged by that. All right, that God is at work and he's blessing and moving in the lives of obedient people. And folks, here's what I think. I think if you stay in the realm of normal living and don't try harder things for God, you don't need God. There are a whole lot of people around you who are living life at a very normal level without God. And if you're living a normal life as opposed to a normal Christian life, these blessings will not be attractive. But if you begin to step out and say, God, I want you to use me. I want you to use our church family to reach this community in a big way. And you will begin to see as you step out, God says, you step out, I'll be at your side. You stay back behind the lines, you don't even need me. You're not going to encounter anything of any regard that would require my strength and power. So I challenge you to think. The testimony of David is the result of steps of obedience of man who reverenced and feared the Lord and followed him in the ways that he called him to follow. And as he stepped out and took risk for the glory of God, what happened? God began to work. And then David had a story. I want a story. And you know what people? People love to hear stories. I will never forget a pastor named Conan O'Brien in Philadelphia. I may have shared this with you before. He had a man visit his church, kind of like Don visited that church years ago. He was the CEO of Campbell's Soup Company. He went to this small church of 50 people in the inner city of Philadelphia. Pastor Conan O'Brien got up to share the word of God. Very simple, basic, Don-style guy. He shared the message. CEO went home. And God began to work in his heart. 
Here's his testimony. He said, I sat in that church. I didn't believe a thing they were singing. I didn't believe a thing they were saying. But they did. And the Spirit of God used that truth proclaimed and that truth lived, that truth sung, to haunt his heart by the Spirit and track down the CEO of Campbell's Soup Company and want him to Christ. Why? Because Conant was a powerful man of God in the Word on TV? No. No. God doesn't need that. God doesn't need flash and bling and high flash. He doesn't need it. He needs basic people. Simple people, average people who will step out and taste and see that God is good so that at the end of the day, they have a story that they want to share with people in need. Okay, so I'm not going to get through this whole text. Because we're coming up on Come and See Sunday. I think of the story of the demoniac of the Gadarenes. He said to Jesus, Jesus, you saved me. I want to be your follower. I want to live the rest of my life with you. You know what Jesus says to him? No. Go and tell your people what great things God has done for you. Go and tell them how God delivered you and changed your life, gave you hope and a future. Go and tell. And as you do that, as you say to people, taste and see that God is good. He never frustrates. Verse 9, David goes on to talk about the trustworthiness of God. He says, fear the Lord, all you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. There's two promises wrapped up with an illustration about lions who sometimes get hungry. They're the king of the, the, of the beast, right? They have all the capacity to track down food and satiate and satisfy themselves. But sometimes things get hard. The pickings get slim or a little bony. What is David saying? Sometimes in a severe drought, even the king of the beast struggles but those that fear the lord lack no good thing and i think i would simply say it to you in this way nothing that is essential to your success and joy is ever withheld Amen. nothing He does that for those who fear him, who reverence him, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and, and honoring of the highness of God, that his word is my bond. And that I'm not listening and choosing selectively about what I will or won't obey. David is saying God is so high that I have come to a place where I now have begun to fear him. Did David know what it was to ignore God? My answer is, yeah. And he messed up his life in serious ways on a few occasions. But I see the long trajectory of his life as what? A man who loved God, feared God, and found wisdom and is transformed in beautiful ways. Not without struggles. Question, are you active in your daily pursuit of God who is trustworthy? Do you track him down in the morning when you drive to work? I got in Victor Kelly's car the other day with him and the radio was on. He started the car and I heard Bible being read by, I think, Alex McLean. Is that right? Victor? Okay, and I thought, he tells me he does this. And I was like, I don't know if he does that as much as he said. I got in his car and he turned on the radio and that was, was pumping out was the word of God. And I said, you know what? That is so cool. Folks, are you seeking and reverencing God and finding him to be amazing in your daily pursuit? Hebrews eleven six 6 says, he rewards, he, he rewards those who seek him. 
And I love the word, I think it's in verse 10. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Folks, here's the key. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then what happens? Everything that you're prone to seek will be added to you. Isn't that cool? Make God your central passion. Make God the passionate pursuit of your heart. And everything that you would otherwise be going after to try to find satisfaction in, which never does satisfy and always requires a little bit more because the return is always diminishing. What is David saying? Those that seek the Lord lack nothing. That's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. Am I? No, I am not. But that's who, I want that kind of contentment that says, you know what, God is trustworthy and faithful, so I don't have to live my life in a panic state going after all those things that will make me happy when I can have God himself, Amen. who then will give me everything I need to be happy. Does that make sense? Yes. And David's saying, look, for that reason we can worship God. Go to the next, uh, the next verse, 11 through 14. And I, I just love this. I love this. Come, my children. The king of Israel says, come, my children. I don't know if he's speaking as a fatherly figure for the nation of Israel or as a father to his extended family. I don't know which it is. But he knew that there's a term of endearment. Come, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord because that reverence for God, that quick obedience to God is the beginning of wisdom. Whoever of you, he says to his kids, whoever of you loves life, do you love life? Yes. I do. I love it. Now, sometimes I don't love my life. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, right? But I, I love the idea of life, right? I, I, I like that idea, vital life, joyful life. It's encouraging. Whoever of you loves life, if you want to love your life, listen to what he says. And I just love because here's permission to be a hedonist again. My, all the letters on my page just shrunk. Whoever desires to see many good days, two things he's going to say. Keep your tongue from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. You want to have a transformed life? Guard your tongue. Because out of it flows the issues of life. What you say is who you are. When you say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. It came from your heart. And God aims through that word that you just spoke that shocked you and destroyed your mate. He aims to capture your attention. He aims to draw you to himself. Turn from evil. That, you know what God wants you to do when you find it happening? Turn from it. Go back, say the corrective thing. Confess, repent, and revere God. You cannot exist and live and dwell and abide in the presence of God when there is toleration of rebellion in your life. It's like kids that are in rebellion don't stand to, tend to stand in front of mom and dad unless they're two and they don't know that they should run to the bedroom and slam the door and turn up the music. Okay, rebels know something. You don't stay with the person that you're rebelling against. And the reason sometimes we don't enjoy God is because we are tolerating segments of rebellion in our life. Rebellion being willful disobedience. Something that I know God has called me to do that I have resisted or haven't done. It's that simple. And when I tolerate that, I don't know this God, even though I know him. Keep your tongue from evil and seek relational peace. I love the way he says this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. 
particularly in the context of relationships, seek peace and pursue it. Be a peacemaker. Don't let your tongue rip. If you want to enjoy the blessings and power and presence of God, what do you do? You become a person who seeks peace, who doesn't take revenge, but leaves it up to God, which will relieve your life a whole lot of pain and trouble. You begin to realize who's really on the throne. I think it's what David is saying here. All those evil words you're speaking are manipulated situations to get what you want. David says, leave it to God and seek peace instead. It's a contrast. David knew what it was to be a cause of trouble in his life, didn't he? These are the words of a broken father to his children. Don't be a liar. That's what he did with Bathsheba, didn't he? He was just flat out a liar, a murderer, an adulterer. Now a broken man who now out of a restored relationship with God says, taste and see that he is good. Do it by fearing him, honor him, reverence him, obey him. The only way to experience God's blessings is to cultivate an aggressive response of sin, to sin and an active pursuit of holiness and obedience. You can't have peace with God. You can't experience the, the blessing and power of God unless you aggressively destroy sin in your life by the power of the Spirit and actively pursue obedience as the Spirit prompts. You won't. You will not know what it is to be joyful. That's why many Christians live at a very mediocre level. We tolerate segments of disobedience while bragging about the areas where we are obedient. May God help us to become fully committed. And I'll, I'll just give you these last couple of verses because we don't, we don't have time. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. I'll make one observation for you in the rest of the psalm. The word righteous is used now, I think, four or five times, and then it's implied another four times. The righteous. Okay, that should be every Christian. And righteous does not mean perfection. Righteous means the general direction of the life, the basic direction, the predictable direction of the life is guided towards what God wants. David couldn't say the blameless because he couldn't even, or the sinless, he didn't fit in. There's only one sinless and that's Christ. But what can we do? We can cultivate a life that is in accordance with the word of God as we reverence him. And as we do that, we become righteous. Okay, and that's important for what it says next. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. I, just, I love these two pictures. The eyes of the Lord, or yeah, the, the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord are attentive. I love watching moms particularly around their children because there's an, hear a peep and there's a look. It's attentive. You know what God is saying? When you live right, you experience the blessing of God's presence in a way that you do not when you are on your own. Okay, obedience invites the presence and power of God. And rebellion will leave him far from you. So I think where you need to go with that is pretty clear. And I think this issue of the posture of concern, eyes and ears, it's a posture of concern on the part of God. That to those who love him, worship him, and obey him, he is listening and he is watching. I love it. I think it's in Jeremiah. He says to Israel, he says, you, Israel, are the apple of my eye. You are the constant observation of my eyes. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
to cut off the memory of them from the land. That's a contrast. To the righteous, God brings blessing. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, there's unforgiven sin because you haven't been to the cross that we sang about this morning. And let God, let God, don't you do it because you can't. Let God break your heart. Let God bend your knee. And let God free you from the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. For someone who stood in your place as righteous. And when he is trusted for salvation, he gives the gift of righteousness. So that the ear of God and the eye of God can be attentive unto us. David then says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. And he delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And this verse is so awesome. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, obviously, because I'm out of time, I, I'll just give you this thought. This, this text, I will simply say, means that God cares about and is compassionate towards his children. If you have trusted him as Lord and Savior, been swept into his family by grace through faith alone, he is your heavenly father who, as we sung earlier, never lets go. And I am so thankful for that truth. When we cry, he hears. When you're crushed in spirit, either broken by your own sin. David knew that, didn't he? Broken by your sin and, and you just feel like a total spiritual jerk. And you cry out to God. He's waiting. His ears are attentive. He's waiting for his son. He's waiting for his daughter to come and confess and repent and be changed. He loves to abide with you. He loves you. His concern for you is expressed in this context in proximity. That he comes near. And what I love is John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt where? Among us. And the spirit of God comes to take residence in us. So that we will be comforted. And when we're comforted, what do we say? Oh, look what I've done for my life. How I've gotten my mind straightened out. How wonderful I am. <laughs> May God help us. When it happens to say, that is God. So this text basically, and there's, you can read to the end, okay? I want to share with you a story. Uh, Tuesday night, I went down to the hospital at Hunterton to visit. A little Lily Mastro was in the hospital, had a, an abscessed lymph node, and was very sick. Uh, so I, I, Tuesday night, I went down to uh, visit her. And so I'm at the hospital with Johnny and Joe and Aurora, which is it's fun being with Johnny and Joe, Okay. Because they're like crazy and I almost think they might be related for that reason. But we got talking and uh, Johnny says to me, Lily had a dream last night. So, oh. I said, I said, Lily, what, what happened? She said, God came to me in a dream. Four-year-old girl, her parents haven't told her anything about what God looks like. Nothing. So we're... Hope you are okay with me sharing this. Like I don't want to scare any of you. <laughs> All right. It, it just made me cry when I heard it. So this four-year-old little girl laying in this bed with all this ivy and stuff and very feverish and sick. And saying to her mom the night before, I want to go home. Insistent. I want to go home. Had a dream. I said, so what happened? She said, God came to me. I said, what did he look like? She said, he, he was white. 
had white hair and was wearing a white costume. I was like, okay. So what did he say to you? She said, he told me that he loves me. And that was it. So what I thought to myself, I was studying this passage. He is near to the brokenhearted and he comforts those who are crushed in spirit. So I thought, isn't it, isn't it cool in your life when the experience of God lines up with the truth of God? When his promise to be near as I'm studying that week. And this little four-year-old girl says, he told me that he loves me. That he loves me. I, I went out, I was like, that is, I knew that. That wasn't new revelation. But it felt new. Do you know what I'm saying? This is the way that God can, through experience, affirm in our hearts what he's doing. Romans 5, 5. The love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit. He comes to flood us with his love. And so I encourage live in an expectation that as you begin to worship God and obey God in some of these particular ways, that you will begin to experience more of the proximity of God. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's close to those who are crushed in spirit. We all go through seasons like that. You are not alone. I think in the church, one thing we need to do is become more honest. I say to James, since he's our pastor for counseling here, I say, James, can you do me a favor? He's like, oh, I think he didn't promise he would. He wanted to hear the favor before. I said, could we encourage people? We can't tell them, but can we encourage people that are seeking counsel to find a friend and say, I am seeking help. Because I'm going through a season in my life where I feel broken and crushed in spirit. Where we would be honest enough that we don't think we have to hide and find, and it's hard for James because he's got to meet with, if it's a lady, when someone else is around. So somebody else is always going to know. But I, I just think this to myself. Would it not be cool? I try to be transparent in the pulpit with my sheer stupidity. Okay. And it's intentional because I don't want you to think something about me that's not true. James has done that for us. This, folks, we all, I say to people that are getting married, Stephanie and Clayton, I said to them the other day, I said, you're going to struggle. You're going to need counsel and help. But let's call it discipleship. Because that's what it is. Teaching people to walk in worship, to walk in obedience before God. So they can experience his nearness and comfort. And then begin to do this together. Okay? He comforts those who are crushed in spirit. He wants to do it in the context of community. And so David says, let's exalt his name together. And when we do, it will be medicine for the soul of the one who is broken and crushed. And you will begin to feed on his faithfulness, as we talked about in Psalm 37. Dwell on the land. Enjoy the presence and power and provision and glory of God. Father, help us.